So there's a little Anglican church on my dirt road. It's where my family worships, and it's where we have found a vibrant sense of community in our neighborhood. It's open 24 hours a day with only a little rock standing in front of the door. It's cold. Someone turns on the heat on Saturday evening to warm it up. It's bright. It's beautiful. The light breaks in through stained glass windows, quite different from the ones that mark this place. When we first moved to the neighborhood about a year ago, we met Jim. Jim and I have had lots of conversations since then, and one such conversation was about this little church on our street. He told me that he'd long since left religion, but he's always fascinated by this little church and the power of the light breaking in. He said he's seen people at the end of their rope, very close to giving up, who enter that church, they stay for a while, and then come out a changed person. Something about the way the light breaks in gives people hope, he said. So we find ourselves today in the season of Epiphany. First comes Advent, and then comes the season of Christmas, the 12 days of Christmas, and then comes the season of Epiphany. Epiphany means to reveal. And as we enter into this season together, I can't help but wonder how has God revealed himself, herself, the divine, to you? Do you have memorable touch points where God has shown you something about God, about yourself, or told you something or reminded you of something? And when life gets tough, you can go back to those touch points as sort of anchors in the storm. You might be thinking, well, how does God reveal? What are the mechanisms, the vehicles? Is it the booming voice in the clouds? Is it through a preacher or a song? Is it only when I locate myself in a quiet closet away from all the distractions in the world in times of prayer and devotion? Is it through coffee with a dear friend who cuts through all the crap to speak words of truth into your life? Is it found in the vastness of creation when walking through an old growth forest with a high canopy with lights breaking in? I'd suggest the answer is yes and. Yes, all of it. And so often we see that God works beyond our categories. The season of Epiphany reminds us that God longs to show us who God is. Yes, God is transcendent, high and lofty, sometimes feeling too big to hold, too much to grasp, too complex to understand. And yet God also possesses a longing to be known, to be sought after, to be found, to be seen. God is also imminent, close to us, closer than the sound of our own heart beating, more available to us than the air we breathe. We just don't always see it or tune our eyes to pay attention to the divine in our midst. For a season, I traveled with the Free Methodists. I was on my way toward uh, tracking with them, toward ordination, and I was introduced in that season to the beloved John Wesley. And out of John Wesley's work, someone else kind of summarized his work and talked about the Wesleyan quadrilateral. John was a rogue Anglican priest, and in a tradition that elevated scripture as kind of the only real way to know God, he offered reason and tradition and experience as other valid ways to experience God, to see God, to know God. And of course, he still believed in the importance of scripture, and that's why this quadrilateral isn't a square, it's more of a rhombus with a heavier importance given to scripture. Beneath it all is this question, how can we know God? How does God reveal the divine to us? 
Wesleyan theologian and author, a former professor of mine uh, too, Howard Snyder, would add a fifth to this list. God reveals the divine through creation. As we find ourselves in a Lutheran sanctuary today, full of these beautiful icons and stories and signposts that point us to the sacred, it's worth naming that Martin Luther was not one who isolated his faith or his God to a building or a book. He said, God writes the gospel not in the Bible alone, but on trees and flowers and clouds and stars. He also said, our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf of springtime. Today, as we consider Epiphany, we are reminded of four particular windows into the way that God reveals himself through these four particular stories. Two are familiar as we have just walked through the Christmas story. First, God reveals himself to the Jewish people, to shepherds and sheep herders and farmers, to the meek and the lowly. These were the first to behold the birth of Jesus. And then God reveals himself to the world beyond the Jewish faith, to Gentiles, to those outside the religious system of Judaism or of a Jewish ethnicity. This he did through the story of the Magi, the wise men, who came from distant lands reading the stars, not the scriptures, and following after the light until they found the one they were looking for. This is the most commonly associated story with Epiphany. The light of the world shows up and breaks through the barriers to reveal the divine to the whole world, not for a single people or for a religious sect, not as an exclusive, not hidden away, no light revealed to everyone and for everyone. Two other stories connect to this season of Epiphany, the wedding at Cana where Jesus turned water into wine, where he ushered in the kingdom of God through the arrival of new wine. And also the story we'll spend a few minutes considering today, the story of Jesus' baptism, where the fullness of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit are revealed and present. The backdrop to this story is the story of John the baptizer, who was preparing the way for the coming Messiah through this baptism of repentance. His message would have been similar to what I offered us last week. Wake up, get ready, the light has come, the glory of the Lord is upon us. So we'll look at Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17 now, and hear these words. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? Jesus answered him, Allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from, from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, author Tish Harrison Warren uh, urges her readers to remember your baptism. As we can see, Jesus' baptism was a memorable one. And I wonder, what was yours like? My own baptism happened when I was uh, about the age of 15. And I was uh, raised in a church where we had this practice that when you were baptized uh, and you came out of the water, you got to pick the song that the whole community would sing. And so as a sort of uh, humorous and angsty teenager, uh, I chose 
hymn number 52, God of Concrete, God of Steel. Me and my cousins, we would uh, often sit in church and flip through the hymnal and find the ones that were the most comical, the ones with the most hilarious lyrics. And God of Concrete, God of Steel, God of Piston and of Wheel was just so much that it was hilarious and it went on and on. God of Girder and of... Uh, rail and it just kept going and going and so I thought it was hilarious that I would pick this song to be my baptism song so that when I came up out of the waters and I left the baptism tank to go get dry the whole congregation had to sing this obnoxious hymn maybe it's a little sacrilegious uh, but humorous nonetheless so this story of Jesus' baptism appears in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the story is basically the same in all three, save for a few small details. This, the story flows that John has introduced this new representative action of baptism, specifically water baptism. John is this radical prophet that is calling people to get ready for the coming of God. And our story picks up right in the middle of this larger section. The very person John has been anticipating happens to wander over to the Jordan River and wants to be baptized. We're introduced to the first point of tension in the story. John does not feel in any way worthy of doing this. He doesn't feel good enough. Uh, Jesus should be baptizing him. What I found striking about this wasn't so much John's worthiness or lack thereof, but that Jesus chooses not only to come in human flesh and enter into the human story, but he chooses to collaborate with humanity, even though we're a mess at times. The language Jesus uses here is collaborative. Allow it for now. This is the way for us to do the next right thing as we follow after God together. This is the way for us to fulfill righteousness. I found this piece of art by uh, Brazilian artist Liz Valente, uh, created last year and posted on her Instagram. And in the picture, you'll see it's a picture of uh, the baptism of Jesus. And it's important to note that this story has evoked tons of art. There are so many icons and artistic depictions of this story because it focuses on the Trinity. But so often, the focus is only on the Trinity, while only a few of these artistic depictions actually include John. So what I loved about this uh, piece of art was that we see John's hands dripping with water as a, as a point of, of focus for the picture, at the intersection of the light breaking in through the clouds and the descent of the Spirit as a dove in front of that, and then Jesus' head... Uh, and John's hand is in the middle of it all, in the midst of the action. It's this beautiful reminder that God not only longs to reveal the divine to us, but God also longs to involve us in divine activity, in the work of the kingdom of God. John isn't just a backdrop to this story. Jesus shows us that John's participation is, is of, of crucial importance. The second thing I'm drawn to are the sensory aspects of the story. In Mark's version of this, he uses a different word for the heavens opening. Instead of using the word for opening like a door, he uses the word for tearing or rending, which is the same word used later on for the tearing of the temple's veil. It speaks to me of intentionality and force. The heavens could not contain the descending spirit nor the light of the Father. They ripped through the divide to be present to the Son in this moment. We might be prone to think of all of this as a kind of overly spiritual scene, maybe like a dream sequence. But in Luke's version of this, he tells us that the spirit's descent wasn't just like a dove. The spirit came in the physical form of a dove. 
This wasn't some abstract story. Those around would have witnessed the clouds getting ripped back and the sights and sounds of a dove flying onto the scene. And if that wasn't enough, we are told there is an auditory component that beckons us to remember another story of the spirit flying just above the waters creation. And here again, the voice of the Father speaks of goodness and belovedness. Rachel Held Evans, in one of her books, wrote, Jesus did not begin to be loved at the moment of his baptism, nor did he cease to be loved when his baptism became a memory. Baptism simply named the reality of his existing and unending belovedness. Even as I remember my own baptism, full of its teenage angst and humor and sacrilege, even then, God spoke belovedness over me. The jokester, uh, the one who was kind of poking at the whole practice, somehow is still beloved. Perhaps I missed the point, and even then, he named me beloved. If we can separate even for a moment who we are and what we do, we will see that belovedness is connected to who we are and who we were made to be. And it has very little to do with all of the things we do or the roles we play or the jobs we engage in or the ways we fail. In her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Tish Harrison Warner, uh, Warren says, It's remarkable that when uh, the Father declares at Jesus' baptism, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, Jesus hasn't really done much of anything that many would find impressive. He hasn't healed anyone or resisted Satan in the wilderness. He hasn't yet been crucified or resurrected. The creation story reminds us that at the outset of it all, goodness and belovedness were spoken over us. And here in this story, we see Jesus, before he does anything at all, has belovedness and goodness spoken over him. And as children of God, we too have the opportunity to hear that voice spoken over us, not because of anything we do, but because of who we are. We are the beloved of God. Our world, and yes, often the voice of religion, is quick to speak shame over us. It's quick to highlight our bad and broken selves, but we cannot let that voice resound louder than the one that speaks of our belovedness. This is the third thing I want us to pay attention to. This story is a picture of the character of God revealed to us. The son follows the the lead of the father. The spirit delights in it all. The father speaks words of love. It's a picture of mutuality and reciprocal love, each one for the others. There's no glory seeking here. They are an example of sharing power and submitting to one another. They are an example of uh, to us of what community ought to look like. Epiphany reminds us to pay attention to the myriad ways God reveals who God is to us. And that last window that I mentioned earlier into Epiphany comes to us in the story of the wedding at Cana. And we'll consider it uh, as a way that we enter into the practice of communion. The story may be a familiar one for you, or it may be foreign. It's the one where Jesus makes water uh, from wa- makes wine from water. It's a favorite of mine, bursting with rich symbolism. Uh, we find out in John chapter one that there's this phrase: "The next day, the next day, the next day," and then in John two it opens with three days later. And so uh, the wedding is happening on the seventh day. 
coincidence? I don't think so. And so Jesus and his mother and his first few disciples end up at this wedding in this remote Galilean town called Cana. I say remote because scholars are not really sure where this place was. They can't really locate it on a map. There's a few different ideas. It's a story found at the beginning of John's gospel. And so again, it's a story where Jesus has not done really much of anything yet. And it's a story located in the obscure, at the margins, not in the places you'd expect to find it. Whenever I, I'm thinking about setting up communion, uh, I've been part of it for uh, setting up communion in a variety of faith communities. And, and I'm always worried about running out of juice cups. It's hard to anticipate how much juice, how many people will be there, how much juice to set out. You never want to run out. We were doing communion uh, at a previous context I was working at. And uh, we were doing it around tables, and they were tables of eight chairs each. And somehow, uh, this one particular table only had seven juice cups. And the message it communicated to us at the table was, there's not enough to go around. That this meal is one marked by scarcity. I remember hearing from my mother-in-law a story of of a, of a wedding that was a potluck. The, um, the bride and groom had invited their wedding guests to contribute to the meal by bringing something to be shared at a potluck but somehow it got missed in the moment and people showed up empty-handed and there was a scramble a mad dash uh, from the wedding party to go to every KFC in town and pick up as much chicken as they could get so that they could provide for the wedding guests who were hungry the central tension of the story here in John 2 is that they've run out of wine Jesus' mother wants him to do something about it, and he eventually decides to act. He instructs the wedding staff to take the jars reserved for ceremonial hand washing and fill them with water, and then draw out the water so the wedding planner can taste it. It's a risky endeavor. Of course, the story goes that the water becomes transformed into wine, and it's a great vintage. Jesus reveals the kingdom of God as one flowing with abundance, better than anything that has come before. And again, we see that this miracle is a collaborative effort between God and those who play their part. And again, we see that God shows up in the mundane, in the ordinary, turning plain old water into wonderful wine. So this meal, the communion meal, is a kind of, of epiphany to us. It's a revealing of God to us. God reveals to us something of the divine through the ordinary. As water is turned into wine at a wedding, these ordinary elements of bread and juice become for us a means to experience the grace of God in the presence of God. So some questions for us to ponder and reflect on uh, today. First one, what do you make of Jesus' baptism happening at the outset of his ministry before he has done anything? Uh, Tish Harrison Warren says, In many liturgical churches, Baptismal fonts are situated at the back of the sanctuary. As people walk into church to worship, they pass by it. This symbolizes how baptism is the entrance into the people of God. It reminds us that before we begin to worship, before we even sit down in church, we are marked as people who belong to Jesus by grace alone, swept up into good news, which we received as a gift from God and from believers who went before us. So what do we make of Jesus' baptism happening at the outset of his ministry before he's done anything? The second question is, how has God revealed himself, the divine, 
to you over the course of your life? Are there particular touch points you remember and recollect when times are tough? And the third one is consider the voice of the Father speaking belovedness. What are the voices that you or your loved ones listen to? What message is spoken over and received throughout your day, your week, your year? And what helps you to hear the voice of God? Be blessed and have a good day.